Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. China's leading research position means that it has set itself up to excel not just in current technological development in almost all sectors, but in future technologies that don't yet exist. That is the conclusion of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in its latest technology tracker across more than 52 critical sectors. My guest today is a lecturer in modern Chinese studies at Leiden University, whose research focuses on Chinese domestic digital technology policy, as well as China's growing importance in global digital affairs. He's also a co-founder of DigiChina, a joint initiative with Stanford University and New America. Welcome to the bunker, Roger Kremers. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Roger, let's start with something broad, okay? Is there a general strategy that could be described as China's approach to tech innovation? Yes, in very many ways there is, and it has actually evolved over the last 30 years. Um, what we sometimes forget is that China in the late 1970s was one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, GDP about a third of that of sub-Saharan African countries. And so China really started from scratch, and then leadership identified that science and technology would be a major driver of development. But obviously, at that point in time, that very often meant just even reproducing the basics of industrial capabilities and scientific capabilities from elsewhere in the world was already a stretch. However, if you invest in research and manufacturing capabilities and know-how uh, for 30, 40 years straight, and you have a country of 1.4 billion people where quite many of them are going to be relatively clever, at some point you come to a tipping point where you're no longer trying to reproduce what the world already has. You are trying to move out in front and uh, essentially either uh, develop uh, competitive advantages that may help you further grow your economy or develop technological advantages that may support your national security. And uh, certainly when it comes to sectors like semiconductors, um, there is a big overlap between those two, and that's where we are now. Mm. But in general, the Chinese approach to tech innovation is very much driven by this sort of this, this state-centered notion of achieving modernization, um, achieving modernization by very heavy investments into universities, into research, but also in industrialization capabilities to make sure that uh, research uh, results can be transformed into marketable products. Um, how does the Thousand Talents so-called program tie into this strategy? Well, the Thousand Talent programs, uh, in case uh, listeners might be unaware, is an initiative by the Chinese government to identify uh, promising researchers and the Thousand Talent Program serves to attract these people to work in Chinese universities and research institutions. And that is being done by offering them very pleasant salaries and other working conditions, by providing them with ample research funding, by uh, creating teams around them, by really putting them in an environment where they can be productive. And there is recent research that suggests that that works. So on the face of it, it is essentially, I guess, uh, a process of reversing the brain drain that China may have suffered over the last few decades with people going abroad, as it were. But recently, there was a case 
to do with a technology inside a can of Coca-Cola, right? There was a chemistry researcher called Shannon Yao, who was sentenced to 168 months in jail for various economic espionage and trade secrets offenses. And what seemed to emerge from that investigation was that the Thousand Talents program is also a sort of vast network of corporate informants. It's a sort of a means to incentivize corporate espionage capabilities. Do you think that is a fair assessment? It, it is very difficult to say exactly whether it falls under the Thousand Talent programs, but what is a lot easier to say is that it's going on. Um, there is this sense that China wants to modernize. To modernize, it needs technology. And it hasn't always wanted to pay for that technology. By the way, that's not something strange. This is what developing countries do when they are developing. Uh, my own adopted country, the Netherlands, uh, abolished the patent system for uh, a couple of years in the early 20th century so that it could suck up technology from abroad free of charge. Uh, it's just China is very large and it's happening now. Therefore, it's very noticeable. Um it is very difficult to say whether those efforts are centrally planned, and some are. Uh, and certainly from the beginning, in the 1980s, for instance, there was a central government publishing house that would have one subscription to globally leading scientific journals that would arrive in Beijing, would be translated in Chinese, and then Chinese copies would be sent out to all university libraries because simply mm-hmm. China was too poor. Uh, to acquire that technological knowledge. The problem with that is that in the long run, that does create a sort of lock-in effect where you believe that the easiest way of acquiring technology is just taking it from where it is. Mm. And there certainly have been uh, considerable efforts on the part of individual Chinese companies to get at uh, valuable intellectual property. Uh, that they could use for their own purposes. And that has taken an absolute plethora of forms. Uh, Sometimes Chinese companies buy foreign companies, as in the case of the car manufacturer Volvo. They hire senior corporate officials. Uh, They bribe employees to hand over valuable corporate know-how and all the rest of it. So it it really is a across-the-board effort to acquire foreign technology that is very decentralized uh, because it's it's also individual companies trying to get at yeah, uh, yeah. that technology without necessarily Beijing sort of having a big hand in all of it. I, I mean, I, I guess I am slightly puzzled about the massive fuss about something that really happens at the corporate level everywhere. Um, but why is it different? Why are Western countries so much more worried that this is the state doing it rather than, say, a massive tech company doing it, which is just as unaccountable, really? You know, when a huge global tech giant goes out there and poaches stuff and, and, and tries to hire talented people from other companies and steal secrets and do all that, they're no more accountable or no less threatening or large than China in some cases. So why is, why is there such a current sort of worry about the role of China in this? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that it's, in a, in a way, it's an everything problem. And it's a big everything problem because China is a huge country. It's uh, no longer, probably, according to recent estimates, the most populous country in the world, but uh, certainly a close second. 
Uh, it is, by some measurements, the largest economy in the world already, uh, and certainly the second. And um, and so there are very clear hard cl- conflicts of interest. There is also an element of future intensifying conflict, where the economic role that China has played in the global manufacturing chain is a place where things can be done cheaply, at relatively high quality, just look at you know Apple products, which are for the largest mm. part made there, and in a way where environmental costs are sort of kept there, right? If we need to reshore the production of smartphones, for instance, if, if smartphones had to be manufactured in Britain or in the Netherlands or in the United States at the salaries or under the conditions at which they're manufactured in China, uh, we'd have a revolution on our hands. Uh, and certainly mm. if we also had to take on board the environmental consequences of that. So China facilitated, on the one hand, huge corporate profits. On the other hand, it also facilitated very comfortable lifestyles uh, in Western countries, right? Uh, Cheap production had a deflationary effect. However, for China, that was a problem. If an iPhone costs £1,000 in a shop in London, only about £60, £70 of that stays in China as a value added for the manufacturing. Now, Chinese GDP is about uh, a third, a quarter that of Western European countries. And so if China's goal is to achieve prosperity that is similar to ours, then even after multiple decades of breakneck economic growth, they still have to quadruple the size of their economy, or at least their per capita Mm -hmm. GDP. And so the question is, how do you do that? You don't do it with low-value-added manufacturing. So we are extracting a rent, in a way. Well, we certainly are extracting economic value. Uh, The problem is that you could argue that uh, that has been a profitable exchange for both sides, only in Mm -hmm. our case, uh, our side of the bargain was millions of shipping containers loaded with junk, most of which is now already in landfills. And the Chinese got billions of export income, which they have used in investing their productive capabilities because they never saw this as an ending station. So there really is, as China is moving into those higher value economic activities, there is much more of a sense that suddenly China is competing with us in those high high earning activities like um tech standard setting, for instance, in 5G, mm-hmm. uh, that we would very much like to keep to ourselves. Thank you very much. So the the ASPI tracker, which I mentioned at the opening, concluded that China is already the global leader in 37 of the 44 critical technologies that it tracks. Um, the USA is basically first in the remaining ones and second in almost all of them. And then come others after a big, big gap. If such domination is already established, what can the West do? Should the West be doing anything? Technology or or being a technologically powerful state is more than simply having done something in the laboratory once. And perhaps the best way to illustrate it is to say that there's a difference between putting Neil Armstrong on the moon once and launching a lunar tourism agency which can do it regularly, safely and for profit. Um, uh-huh. And so that isn't quite uh, what ASPI tracks. And that is where uh, major difficulties lie within the Chinese system. Uh, 
a technological capability is only one part of a much bigger ecosystem where you need to take a technological capability, you need to be able to industrialize it, you need to be able to standardize it, you need to develop products with it, and then you can sort of uh, grow it. Similarly, with uh, with ChatGPT, for instance, uh, there may be very many use cases and profit models that use ChatGPT, but that's simply not where the discussion is at this point of its development. This is something that we're going to see developing over time. Uh, what can the West do? Well, the question is really, what is the goal of the West? And this is where I think there's a second component to what we were talking about just now that supplements those hard interests. And that component is, call it psychological, call it philosophical. In many ways, it's even existential. And it is that, in very many ways, China confronts us with a world that we didn't think could exist and that we actually don't really want to be thinking about. What do I mean by that? Well, after the end of the Cold War, we all got enamored with this idea of the end of history. There was only one way in which a country or a society could exist, and that was free market capitalism uh, plus liberal democracy. And that was pretty much what we expected uh, would happen in China, right? The fact that the Tiananmen protests didn't result in the fall of the communist regime in Beijing in a similar way to the end of the Soviet Union and the satellites regimes was by and large seen as only delaying the inevitable. And the tone with which we talk about China is very much this notion of essentially they're in some sort of extra time in the football game of history, but sooner or later the referee will whistle and the Communist Party regime will disappear and that'll be the end of mm -hmm. it. And that seems not to be happening, quite the opposite. The Chinese Communist Party seems to be in the saddle uh, quite solidly, but also this is a state that in very many ways is rather successful. That is one element. So not only does it defy our expectations, it then insults us by essentially making us dependent on it. And that is the second thing. We love to think about how we are very innovative and how we are... Um, we, we've got these free societies and free thinkers, and we have these gurus like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk who can come up with these wonderful ideas. But we forget that the execution of those ideas pretty much happens in China. And that, therefore, the story of capitalism cannot be complete without the story of how capitalism leverages China. And again, that's a very uncomfortable realization for Western thinkers to come to. We then come to the concept of digital sovereignty. And I have heard it said that really there can only be two entities that are digitally sovereign, China and America, and that maybe the EU is now making some sort of combined effort to also be digitally sovereign. What is it and why does it matter so much? Well, it matters because this is really the first time since pretty much the end of the Cold War that we're no longer talking about integrating the international system, but about disintegrating the international system. And as someone who lived in Britain uh, during the time of the Brexit referendum, and dare I say, an avid listener to the Bunker podcast, uh, <laughs> tracking the fallout uh, of said referendum, I think we can safely say that disintegrating uh, a global economy is extremely difficult. Because I'm old enough to remember when 
the Western world was extremely optimistic about digital technology. Digital technology would transform everything. It would uh, disrupt uh, backward business models that clearly needed a shakeup, but it would also, it would create freedoms. It would sort of permanently alter uh, the human condition for the better. And it was going to be universal, right? Information wants to be free and that fit in with uh, that post-Cold War context. The internet would bring the light of democracy and the light of free market capitalism uh, to the dark places of the world. And um, unsurprisingly, the Chinese Communist Party didn't really see things that way. It saw that universalism, uh, that US-centric universalism, very much as a threat, and pretty much from day one started protecting itself against it. And around 2010 or so, when you've had the first major shocks, uh, including Google's departure from China, uh, the US launching the open internet agenda, which Beijing very much sees as um, targeting China, um, Beijing needs to come up with something that justifies what it does. And sovereignty becomes that. Sovereignty, the notion that in the end, it is up to national governments to define and to regulate what's happening in their digital spaces, which then also means, and this is this comes to your point, if there's only two real sovereigns in cyberspace, that if you are going to say that we want the ability for autonomous decision-making, we also need the technological capability. And so yeah. China has spent uh, considerable amounts of effort to make sure that the Communist Party of China can rule unimpeded, both in terms of regime stability and in terms of realizing its program. It can rule unimpeded by any external force. And that's really what China means uh, by digital sovereignty. Yeah, and, and, and I find it very interesting that they sort of hug their own political and cultural concepts in order to achieve that. I was reading a, a Xi Jinping 2021 speech on technology in which he says, science and technology personnel must be spared from spending lots of time on needless socializing. Which I find that incredibly interesting culturally and politically because a Western nation would never accept a, a pronouncement like that. So in many ways, China is using its political and cultural difference to actually advance its its interests rather than trying to replicate the western model is that is that a fair summary of well certainly it's 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 not trying to replicate the current western model because it sees it as uh, not necessarily conducive to where it wants to go and that's really a fallout of the 2008 financial crisis, up to which point China was very much tracking what the United States, the European Union, and other wealthier countries were doing. But the crisis of 2008 demonstrated to them that this financialized model of capitalism was going to lead to instability. And if you are a Leninist party, instability is the last thing that you want. So it mm. needs to find a different way of achieving prosperity that isn't as sensitive, for instance, to the problems that deeply marketized, uncontrolled, financialized uh, capitalism brings. And one element of that is that it has taken a long, hard look at what individual companies do and what that actually brings in terms of prosperity. And as you've seen over the last two, three years, there was a major wave of regulation that mainly targeted Chinese platform companies, uh, large giants like Didi, the ride-sharing company, Alibaba, uh, and its financial spin-off, Tencent. 
And in Western media, that was very much seen as this is Xi Jinping and the Chinese government going after their most innovative companies, you know, idiots. But when you look at it from the Chinese perspective, they don't see these companies as very innovative. They see them as essentially displacing activity that was already happening. You know, what is the real difference between me ordering a meal with my house phone and paying in cash from ordering it through an app? So the Chinese government came to see these large platform apps as rent seekers, uh, tax farmers, rather than companies that actually durably increased the productivity and the technological capability of Chinese society writ large. Um, it's not because it makes money that, that, it, that it results in durable growth uh, in that perspective. But it's also a very instrumental use of language where nationalism is used to justify the ruling position of the Communist Party, where the Communist Party wants to present itself as a symbol of a nation that has been downtrodden uh, since pretty much the Opium War, and that is now seeking its righteous place in the global pecking order again. Which actually brings me nicely to my final question. Uh, Rebecca Fanning uh, writes in her book, Tech Giants of China, that AI specialities, for instance, for each Chinese tech titan, are now earmarked centrally by the Ministry of Science and Technology. So they say, Baidu, you do autonomous driving. Alibaba, you do smart city initiatives. Tencent, you do medical diagnosis, right? So, so I wanted to ask you this. Is China's progress really a challenge to the free market model? Is that why the West reacts so, in some ways, hysterically to it? The story in the capitalist West for decades has been that only private enterprise can deliver progress through competition. And it's very difficult to explain then how China is leaving us behind in some ways as a state-run or a centralized model. Is that the conundrum that is impossible to explain for for Western um, economic thinkers? I would say it isn't just difficult to explain. It's almost like it offends us. How dare they be successful in a way different from the one that we want them to follow? <laughs> Um, I have a little bit of, of, of a quibble with the sort of, you know, uh, we are not really dealing with the sort of plan where Beijing tells Chinese companies what to do. It is, it is much more a sort of call and response or, or, or a give and take where firms have developed certain skills or, or, or leadership positions in certain areas, and then Beijing wants to amplify that. So it is this very clever use of market tools and market mechanisms embedded in a broader political context, which also wants the ability to set strategic goals. And that is something, I mean, it's not completely anathema to the West. If you read uh, very interesting thinkers like Mariana Mazzucato, who's been you know, mm -hmm. using the Apollo program uh, and the, the idea of the entrepreneurial state as, as a metaphor for that, you know, these ideas are there. But indeed, we've just come out of uh, 30 years where marketization worked very much for very many people who are doing who are doing what they can 
to preserve that situation. And you could be very cynical about it and say this is because it makes them wealthy. But I think that we underestimate the psychological uh, factor as well of just people want the world to be what they want it to be. And, and we'll get very cranky when it turns out to be different. Roger Creamers, thank you so much for such an illuminating chat. You're a fan of The Bunker, and now The Bunker is a fan of you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the Fadnik platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of President Biden last year. I have made this clear to President Xi of China. We need not have confrontation, but we have a stiff economic and technological competition. And we're going to insist that everyone, including China, play by the same rules. The question I suspect is, does the West really have an entitlement to define those rules for everyone else when there is so little we can do to force China to play by them? This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.